and welcome to Policy Pod, a podcast from the University of Southampton's Knowledge Brokerage Unit, Public Policy Southampton. My name is Giles, I'm your host, and I have the pleasure of leading Public Policy Southampton, where we work to enhance the local, subnational, national, and international policy impacts of research conducted at the University of Southampton. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Pavin Tamvalda, who is Associate Professor at Southampton Business School, specialising in interdisciplinary entrepreneurship and strategy research. He's also the Deputy Director for Impact and Collaboration at the ESRC's South Coast Doctoral Training Partnership. Thanks for joining us, Pavan. Thank you, Giles. Real pleasure to be here. So let's go right back to the beginning. What did you study at A-levels and where did you study? I studied economics, mathematics and statistics for my A-levels. I also had... um, political science as a, you know, a fourth subject that I had to study. So that's more or less my A-level uh, background. Uh, but that's when I fell in love with economics. I, in fact, fell in love with something called the law of demand. And I got fascinated by, uh, in, in fact, I got fascinated with how a simple curve could, um, could explain human behavior across the whole world, whether it's in England or whether it's in India or anywhere else, the demand curve stands good in 99% of cases. So I just, you know, I, I, I marveled at what economics can do in terms of explaining human behavior and I fell in love with it. So that's the starting, starting of my journey. Excellent stuff. So economics was your undergraduate degree. What's your journey from there to the University of Southampton? So economics was uh, not my undergrad major. So at A-levels, I did economics, mathematics, statistics, and I continued on with the same uh, combination for my undergrad. But in the final year, I majored in mathematics because every time I opened an economics journal, there was so much math in it. I thought, well, I better equip myself with more uh, complicated uh, and more complex uh, mathematics uh, knowledge. Uh, which is why I did a master's in mathematics. Uh, but because I studied in India, there was a fair amount of computer science. So that sort of formed my uh, intellectual foundation, uh, the combination of economic statistics, mathematics, to an extent computer science, and, and, and uh, here and there, a little bit of political science. So they more or less reflect my intellectual interests and my, my subsequent journey. After my master's, I went to the Indian Institute of Technology to do a PhD uh, in artificial intelligence, but I I was an economist at heart and I always loved it. So I switched back to economics. I came to Germany to do my PhD at the University of Göttingen uh, with Professor Stefan Klaassen, uh, who who is a a famous student of Amartya Sen. Uh, And then I subsequently joined the Max Planck Institute of Economics on a PhD scholarship to continue my PhD, which is where I did my thesis, which is where I wrote my thesis on economics of entrepreneurship, because I saw entrepreneurship as a solution to a large number of uh, problems and issues that the developing world faces. And in fact, it was just not, it's not just the developing countries, even developed countries find uh, solace in in entrepreneurial initiatives of people so for for especially economic progress so we need it and that's what i specialized in uh, at the max planck subsequently i did go to the harvard business school as a visiting fellow in 2009 
joined Aston University as a lecturer and then came to Southampton in 2013 uh, as a senior lecturer at the business school. In today's episode, we're going to talk about micro-entrepreneurships. Can we start with a definition? What qualifies as a micro-entrepreneurship? So when entrepreneurship is studied as a phenomena, you know, the, people look at it from a variety of angles. They look at new startups, they look at, uh, you know, people who are taking self-employment uh, as, as an occupational mode. So entrepreneurship is studied in more than one ways uh, in, 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 in scholarship. Now, what I uh, define micro-entrepreneurship as this small-scale activity that is, you know, that is very widespread. It is prevalent, and in fact, if even in the UK, 99% of all firms that we have here have less than 10 employees. So that's sort of a benchmark for defining what's micro-entrepreneurship. It's, it's all proprietary owner companies and startups and, and also established existing enterprises that are um, having less than 10 employees. So that's more or less my broad categorization of what micro-entrepreneurship is. But it's a significant part of the total enterprise activity. It contributes in most contexts more than 50% of the value added. So it's not something to be taken lightly. So can you tell me a bit more about how micro-entrepreneurships or micro-entrepreneurial enterprises are operating within the economy? If we see how the capitalistic model is working, we have these big, large firms giving majority of employment. You know, that's a typical notion that we carry, you know, the, uh, when we look at employment and job prospects, etc. If you go down to, uh, if you go and speak to any undergrad student at Southampton and ask him as to where he plans to work, he'll definitely quote one of the top 100 or top 500 firms. Uh, that's, that, that's the norm. That's a, that's a typical uh, attitudinal thing that got built into the system over many, many, many generations. Now, the, well, what is missed out in that narrative is that there is this huge, huge contribution that is made by micro-entrepreneurship and micro-entrepreneurs um, who, run, who run our shops on the high street, who run those you know, small companies that are producing specialist goods and services. So there's, there's enormous contribution made by all these firms. And it's not necessarily quite taken into consideration when, for example, the students are looking for jobs. The first thing they look at is, can I get to a Google? Can I get to a Microsoft? Can I get to you know, a, a Procter & Gamble? But it's, things are changing now. There's a lot more awareness about entrepreneurship the fact that there's all this enterprise activity happening and there are all these opportunities firms have that they present to the next generation of employees and the next generation of students and so on. So critically important and not well enough observed. Casting our minds forward to a post-pandemic world, what do you see the role of micro-entrepreneurs in addressing climate change? They have an enormous contribution to make and they already do. Um, in fact, a large-scale study that I've undertaken, consisting of more than 10,000 firms from, a, from around 35 countries in Europe and, and America, show that these companies that focus on green credentials, that have green credentials, they tend to perform better. Now, if you think about how many of them are there, the numerosity of that enterprise activity, anything that they do in terms of 
being environmentally friendly, it's going to have a significant impact. If, because if, if, if you just have the big producers do contribute disproportionately more to adverse climatic effects. But at the same time, uh, the, the micro entrepreneurs and small businesses have a lot to contribute as well, given that there are so many in number. I think historically it's either been viewed that you had green credentials or you could be profitable. But from your research, it appears to show that those two things aren't mutually exclusive at all. Tell me some more about that. Absolutely. And my research does demonstrate uh, that uh, there are positive performance returns for greening initiatives of com when, when companies go in the direction of pursuing green products and services and inputs and hire green employees and so on. And the four main channels through which all that all those benefits occur. One is when they offer something green, they tend to identify innovative market niches which are which are not very prominent, but they, they tend to create these new niches and that actually helps them. Like for example, there is a, a company called Frugal Pack uh, in the UK that produces a completely dissolvable paper cup. There's a second channel that helps, that helps uh, uh, their, their uh, entire activity, which is that by, by going green, they tend to reinforce employee motivation. Yeah, they tend to inspire employees and some of the greatest companies that we see today uh, like even big companies like Cisco are also considered some of the most green companies and and uh, more recently Google has pledged to have a, a completely zero impact on environment in over the next you know decade or so there's a third way in which it helps which is that stakeholders become more engaged you have more investment you're more likely to attract investment you're more likely to have uh, other benefits of of going green with regard to your you know how you're interacting with your stakeholders and how they are interacting with you and not just that in in a uh, in a different way you also have increased efficiency because you're by, by going green, you're cutting down, you know, you're looking at where in your operations you're not being efficient and you are, you're, you're cutting down those bits. And this is again, once again, seen in, uh, in, in many companies. And those firms that tend not to do this, they tend to have adverse, uh, you know, economic impacts. And, the, and, and, a, a, and a glaring uh, example in front of us is that of Volkswagen a couple of years back got caught in the diesel scandal and all that. And it had a huge impact, not just on Volkswagen alone, but on the German car industry itself. Even BMWs and the Mercs, you know, uh, uh, had, had some sort of uh, uh, an impact because of what happened with, a, with a, uh, a company in that industry coming from that country. So there is a growing conscientiousness around being sustainable, being environmentally friendly, uh, companies being more responsible towards society and environment. So in that, in that sort of a broad context, there is a, there's an emergent need for uh, businesses to operate in, in, in a way that is uh, conducive to the world around them. Traditional lenders must find it really hard to be able to calculate the risk. So where do micro-entrepreneurs tend to go to be able to access capital and how does this feed into their green credentials? 
more recently crowdfunding has become uh, is is becoming a norm for and uh, uh, enterprises that are seeking uh, external support uh, because the crowd is uh, sensitive to to uh, the opportunity of contributing to these companies and they're also aware of the contribution that these companies are making to to the world around so for example there, there was a company called polysolar that went on a crowdfunding campaign and it, it received double the amount that it requested from the platform uh, where it was listed and there's another large company called delight which has become large it's a it's a social enterprise a for for profit social enterprise that offers sustainable solar lighting bulbs uh, around developing countries and that company has raised 200 million dollars uh, over the last over the last uh, decade or so for its operations and it, it has touched the lives of billion people around the planet so there are these fantastic opportunities not just from traditional large uh, scale investors but also from people who are uh, you know, uh, willing to invest in ideas that are good for the world. So I'm really interested in how public policy responds to micro-entrepreneurships. How well supported do you think these types of organizations are in comparison to the larger organizations that we all know the names of? And going even further, what are the particular policy initiatives that would support the growth of micro-entrepreneurial enterprises? One of the recent initiatives uh, in the UK uh, by His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales is the Terra Carter. I don't know if you heard of it. It just recently, uh, uh, it was recently announced. A large number of large businesses signed up to it. Uh, it was about how we as a planet could go forward uh, uh, through a green recovery from from COVID and have a, a lot more sustainable uh, agenda uh, in front of us as 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 uh, the whole thing reconstructs. Now, within that context, when we look at micro entrepreneurs and micro entrepreneurship, once again, you know, the question is, to what extent is public policy aligned to supporting the greening of small businesses? There are these, you know, traditional sorts of incentives, like, you know, providing tax relief, providing NI contribution, relief on NI contributions and so on. But I think we need much more than those traditional forms of support. And, and there there is a, 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 a definitive need to think innovatively as to how these companies that are going green, that are interested in, <clears throat> that are interested in you know, producing those green products and services, in, in offering those green products and services, and how they can be productive. I, 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 I for one, uh, have uh, suggested this before, which is probably offering a marketplace wherein small-scale providers, small-scale providers of these uh, green products and services can go and offer those services to the whole world. You know, that way we can we can really uh, uh, help them uh, and this is not an incentive this is not something that uh, that is a financial incentive that wherein uh, the government is monetarily contributing to them but it is facilitating access to the offerings that they are making uh, through, to through through uh, to different consumer markets around the world and all that would would enable the micro entrepreneurs 
to flourish, uh, to, to scale up their own activities. So for example, if we look at a typical micro entrepreneur, if he has to go and create a website for himself and then advertise that website and then tell the whole world about the offerings that he is having, it's too much of an ask for us to expect him to do all that. But instead, if the government, for example, takes a public policy initiative to proactively support a large number of such micro enterprises by, uh, by creating a, a digital platform wherein they can put their offerings online and then, you know, and, and these offerings are showcased to the rest of the world. Similarly, it can do on the investment front. So there are so many opportunities that are there wherein people who are, uh, I mean, when I say people, I mean entrepreneurs and firms that are uh, going forward, pressing ahead with um, green agendas, uh, with products and services that are that are more sustainable, I think there's a need to support them in a variety of ways and there's scope for supporting them in a variety of ways. So thinking about the individuals who are running these organisations, the support from mentors must be incredibly useful to be able to connect with a diversity of information and to be able to build their networks. Is this something that you see that there's a role for government to be able to support that network growth or do they exist quite comfortably without the support of government? The word mentor has uh, different connotations. And recently when I was speaking to one uh, budding entrepreneur and I was telling him about how uh, there could be a need for mentorship, the thing that he said to me really startled me. He said, we rather want someone who would work with us rather than being just a mentor who is just you know coming and showing off his expertise for once in a while so there is an expectation from micro entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs in general that mentors are, are somewhat involved more closely that their contributions are more aligned with the vision and the mission of of the uh, you know entrepreneurial initiatives that that people take so they're not expecting very senior people to come in and uh, you know just give them a one-off advice here and there. What they're expecting is some sort of a much more uh, closer relationship that can that can be beneficial uh, for for the company's performance in long run. That you know because they 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 believe that that could be more beneficial for the company. For their company's performance, and and they were uh, they were telling me that it would help if it is more sector specific and so on. If we look at mentorship through those lens, then we need a lot more decentralized system, wherein people are able to connect with uh, expert experts in their specific areas. And for this, once again, given that we are in this digital world, we are moving forward uh, with digitalization in a big way we need governments to uh, take some initiatives on that front so that using dig digital technologies if uh, if they are able to do it now some of some of this is also private sector you know enterprise you know people could entrepreneurs could take up these initiatives and we do have uh, platforms that connect mentors with prospective you know um, uh, entrepreneurs and so on there's no denial of that but at the same time 
if we want uh, a wider acceptance, there's a stamp of approval. The moment uh, a public authority comes in and says like, look, we are facilitating something like this to happen. We are supporting some of those platforms. We are putting our own expertise in there so that we can, we can offer you much more uh, current advice in terms of what opportunities are there and what you can do. I think it'd be fabulous. I mean, there's nothing that should stop a government or a public institution from offering that sort of support. So thinking about the next generation of researchers, one of the other roles that you have at the university is co-director of the South Coast Doctoral Training Partnership. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the South Coast Doctoral Training Partnership. What is it and what collaboration have you had with Public Policy Southampton in the past? Thank you once again. The South Coast Doctoral uh, Partnership uh, is a, a very large collaboration um, between three universities, uh, the University of Southampton, Portsmouth, and the University of Brighton. That brings together more than 150 PhD students in different uh, social science uh, disciplines to do their PhDs. It offers them scholarships. The process is very competitive. Around 40 PhD students are selected every year. And these uh, PhD students are fully supported and uh, equipped to write their dissertations. And this, this is an ESRC, ESRC supported project. Perhaps we should speak a little bit about the collaboration between PPS and SCDTP with the New Forest National Park. Oh yes, I was about to get the, uh, get to that because this was the one that Public Policy Southampton facilitated, uh, wherein uh, the chief of uh, New Forest National Park Authority is uh, very actively engaged with with us to um, uh, to collab, you know, to collaborate and. Um, uh, 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 and also uh, to apply for a project, a large-scale research project uh, that, that examines how a, a solid green recovery can occur going forward from where we are. And uh, they're really keen on offering more internships. They, they were very uh, impressed with uh, the, in, the work that was done by one of our doctoral students as part of uh, their internship with them. And the New Forest National Park Authority has come back to me and I'm very pleased about it. They want to have many more students coming and working with them because they said that has brought a lot of fresh perspectives to the work that they were doing. And, that, and, that, and that's why they were so impressed and they could see those mutual synergies being there. And in addition to that, we are of course getting started on a research project that brings together a wide range of stakeholders, including councils and local enterprise partnerships to seek uh, public funding for a research project on uh, green recovery. So in addition to your research, what are the next steps in terms of engaging with micro entrepreneurs to address their challenges? Thank you, Giles. I mean, the one thing that I co-founded along with a, a technology partner from America is a web platform called ipowerz.com. And in principle, what iPowers aims to accomplish is, in principle, iPowers fast tracks uh, micro-entrepreneurship and small business growth by connecting small business owners and micro-entrepreneurs with potential mentors, investors, and service providers. 
and in due course of time, uh, iPowers wants to integrate an e-commerce platform so that these micro-entrepreneurs can put, you know, put forward their offerings and announce them and showcase them to the whole world. So this way, we believe we, we, we can make a substantial contribution and a difference to their efforts. We want to basically do all this to support the, the good work that micro-entrepreneurs do. So this is an enterprise initiative that I'm involved in, that I've co-founded. And more recently, Southampton has uh, uh, you know, supported it as a researcher startup at the university. So we are very pleased that we are also do, doing something to actually support micro-entrepreneurs in this country and around the world. Brilliant. Thanks very much for your time today, Pavim. We'll ensure that there are links in the show notes so that people can sign up and become involved. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. I've been Giles. This has been Policy Pod. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and recommend wherever you get your podcast. It really does help to make us more visible. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the patience, perseverance and positivity of Teo Kuriaki in Public Policy Southampton, Kate Briggs-Price and Ben McQuig in Keep Busy Productions. Our music is by University of Southampton composition student Paul Forster. If you want to find out more about our work, you can find us on Twitter at Public Policy UOS on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash public policy UOS and on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash showcase forward slash public policy UOS. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>